Revelation chapter 13. If you noticed in the bulletin message this morning, the introduction to the Antichrist part four. Um, it's probably the longest introduction I've ever done. My kids might disagree with that. But there's a lot about the Antichrist in this chapter, but there's a lot of lessons, and that's what's taken us a while to get through here, because I want us to see the lessons as we see the facts about the person. And this morning, that is the case as well. But we're going back to Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to read the first 10 verses again. Nothing wrong with repeating scripture, so we learn it and know it. So starting at verse 1, the Bible says this, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints, and to overcome them. And power was given unto him over all kindreds, and tongues, and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity." He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. We're going to stop there, and we will have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at our message this morning. So let's bow in prayer. Lord God, again, we know that your word is given to us, that all of it is inspired, that you have said that all of it is good for instruction, for correction, for reproof, for doctrine. Lord, I pray that you would just teach us now. Through your word, I pray that the power of your spirit would help us to understand and give us those lessons that we need to know, not just the facts, but teach us the principles so that we might apply them in our lives and be doers of the word and not hearers only. So Lord, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, fill me with your spirit now. I need your help. I need your strength. I need your wisdom to speak your word. May we hear from you and just use me as that instrument in accomplishing your purpose today. We give you the praise and glory for what you're going to do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come back to Revelation 13, uh, the whole chapter really is focused on this person that we know as the Antichrist. And in the second part, starting next week, Lord willing, we'll see... his cohort, if you will, the false prophet. But today we're going to finish up this section on the Antichrist in the first ten verses. And so far in this introduction, what we've seen is a lot about the man so far. It's his origin. Beginning of the chapter tells us that he comes out of the New World Order, the, the kingdoms 
that have ruled the earth back even from the time of Israel in Egypt, and that philosophy that dominates heathen nations will dominate the kingdom that he comes out of. And we know that that will be a resurrection, in a sense, of the Roman empirical system or the Roman Empire. And so he, we know his origin. We know his power. The Bible tells us in chapter 13 his power ultimately comes from Satan. He's a servant of Satan. And he is filled with a demon or demonic power. And his power gives him power to do things such as rising to the, to, over the world in power, ruling all nations, uh, we saw a couple weeks ago that he was killed and somehow comes back to life. He's given power to blaspheme God, and he causes all that follow him to blaspheme God as well. And he makes war against the saints and to overcome them. Now, we understand that all power belongs to God. That's what the Bible says. And so even though his power is from Satan, even Satan's power is in the realm of God's authority. And so he is enabled, the Antichrist is enabled, not just by Satan, but by God to do these things, which doesn't make sense to us, but that is what the Bible teaches us. And this morning, we're going to go a little bit farther in the chapter, down to verse 10, and we're going to see that he receives power to make all the world worship him, all the people of the earth. Now, where we left off last time, a couple weeks ago, was with this question, how can, God enable, how can God enable and empower someone like the Antichrist, who is totally evil, to commit such evil even against his own people? How can God enable that? You know, it comes back to the, the bigger question, how can a good God allow such evil in the world? And this, this, we see the answers here if we will open our eyes to it, Okay. The paradoxical truth is this. God is in control. And even God is in control as we see the Antichrist exerting his power over the world in such an evil way, killing Christians. And here he's causing them, the the whole world, to worship himself other than worshiping God. We already read that he blasphemes God. He causes those that worship him to blaspheme as well. And God gives him the power to do that. How can that be? Well, here's, we see that in verse 7, the second part of verse 7. That's where we're going to start today. God gives the Antichrist authority over all the earth so that they worship him. This is authority given by God. It says, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So here, the Antichrist literally takes the place of God in worship. But he's given the authority and the opportunity to do that by God himself. And so God has a purpose in it. Now, I want you to understand something. The world... By the time we get to the tribulation, and even today this is true, the world is not atheistic. What you will see in the tribulation time is not a whole bunch of atheists. God made man to need worship. They need to worship something. They will worship God 
where they will worship Satan, they will worship celebrities, they will worship themselves, but man needs to worship. And so the Antichrist here is not an atheist. He's not uh, imposing atheism on people. Because atheism believes there is no God. The Antichrist wants people to believe that he is God. And that that's why he engenders the worship from people. Now, in representing the Antichrist, we see that people literally worship the Satan himself then. And so Satan is that false god for the people who do not trust in Christ. And that's not the truth just in the tribulation. That's the truth today. That's been the truth all throughout history. Anyone who will not worship God ends up worshiping Satan. Remember, Satan was the one who said, I will set myself above the Most High. I will be like God. And so he's always had this desire to take God's place. And here, literally, in the tribulation period, he does that through the Antichrist, as all people of the earth worship him. So this is the ultimate false religions. It's all religions, all false religions wrapped up in one. The world will be very religious during the tribulation. Now, you already know there's a push today for kind of a one-world religion. Okay, and you've heard people say things like, well, all roads lead to God. We all worship the same God, but we all call him different things. Okay, the Muslims want us to believe that Allah is the same God as the God of the Bible. And that's the religion that the Antichrist will be pandering at the beginning of the tribulation, that, hey, we can all come together under one religion because we really all worship the same God, we just call him different things. The first three and a half years, and we're going to read this when we get to to, uh, chapter 17, the first three and a half years, there is a one-world religion. It's kind of an envelope religion where it's brought all of the religions into one religion. And so everybody's accepted, and all gods are accepted. Now that will change at the midpoint of the tribulation, as the Antichrist makes himself the only god that people can worship. Okay? But it's not an atheistic system. He uses this instinct, if you will, to worship that, man ha- that God has built within man. And he brings it to himself. And so he, in, in this position of authority that he has, politically, he will cause all people to worship him religiously. Now, in that position, it says he makes all people on the earth to become blasphemers or to worship himself other than God. Now, there's an exception to that in verse 8. It's not everybody who's alive. It says, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the, uh, the, book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, so true believers are spared from this. They will not succumb to worshiping the Antichrist or Satan. Everyone else will, because everybody else is about self-preservation. Now, remember, we're about the mid- midway through the, the tribulation period at this point. Remember, the first six seals, the seventh seal has just been unleashed. The six trumpets have been unleashed. Okay, we've read about those in previous chapters. But with the judgments of God pouring down upon the earth, remember at the end of chapter 6, it says the people will call on the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. They know the judgment is coming from God. They recognize God's judgment. Okay, So it's not a non-religious system. It is a religion 
built around the absence of the true God, import whatever else you will in that place. And therefore, they will blaspheme God. But in the midst of all that suffering, everybody's about self-preservation. So if the God of heaven, if, if that God is going to try to kill us with all of these plagues and all of these disasters, why should we worship him? Let's look for somebody else who's going to save us, who's going to give us what we want. Now, that's not new to the tribulation. That's what people worship today. They want a God of their own making who will give them the life that they want, that they think they deserve. And that's embedded in this phrase that we read here in verse 7. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth. That phrase, all that dwell upon the earth, is interpreted in the Greek as earth dwellers. It means rooted, grounded in the earth. Those whose home is the earth. Now, as believers, we're told by Paul in the epistles, this is not our home. We are strangers, aliens, pilgrims, right? If we're truly saved, this is not our resting place. This is not our home. This is not where our anchor is. It's in heaven. So our citizenship belongs in heaven. We're just travelers through this life until we get there. But this is talking about People who have made earth their home and all of their goals, all of their desires are for what the earth gives them. That's who worships the Antichrist. That's who worships Satan. They have made this earth everything. This is their God, themselves, what they can get. And when Antichrist promises them safety, when Antichrist promises them prosperity and promises them provision, he becomes their God. Now, God qualifies, as I mentioned, who worships the beast. Look at verse 8 again. It says, except or whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So we're talking about non-believers. But this tells us there will be true, true believers on the earth at this time. People who truly believe, who follow Christ as their Savior, who have accepted Christ's sacrifice for their salvation and have surrendered their lives to his authority. Instead of to this beast that we read about here in in Revelation 13. Now, the translation of this, that phrase, whose names are not written in the, the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Where that phrase from the foundation of the world falls is in debate. Or what it applies to is in debate. If you have other versions, that phrase may be applied to the Lamb slain. Or it may be applied to whose names were not written. So either your names are not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, or the lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. So which is correct? And the answer is yes. Okay? They're both correct. So it doesn't really matter how you read this, because the Bible teaches both truths. God's plan A always has been that Jesus Christ would become our Savior and die on the cross. God's plan A always has been that there will be people who will not accept that, and therefore their names are not written in the book of life. God knew all of what was going to happen. God knew every single person that would believe before he even created them. And so God's plan has always been established from even before creation that there would be sinners and that there would be a Savior. 
And many of those sinners would not accept the Savior. But that didn't change God's plan. So the answer here is, yes, there are people who were destined in their unbelief before the foundations of the world. And Jesus Christ was destined to die as our Savior before the foundations of the world. But it's those people who are not written in the book of life that will be doomed. They are the ones that will surrender to worship the Antichrist here. These to whom God has, or, has not ordained a salvation in his foreknowledge will be doomed to be the subjects of Satan himself. And as subjects of Satan, they will suffer the same eternal fate that Satan will suffer. Because that's the God they worship. Now as we get forward into the next several chapters of Revelation, we get to chapter 19, we see the fate of the Antichrist. We see the fate of the false prophet who we're going to read about in the second part of this chapter. And they're both cast alive into the lake of fire. And then when you get to chapter 20, it tells us that all of those who followed them will be cast into the lake of fire as well. So their doom is their choice based on whom they have chosen to surrender to. But God knew who those were going to be. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, the, the wisest man on earth tells us this, and it's speaking the words of God, because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish shall come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they, that they hated knowledge, they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. It is their own choice. They make the choice to surrender to Satan, to the Antichrist. And people today still have that choice available. We either surrender to God in worship of the true God. The only other alternative is to surrender to Satan and, what he, and the gods that he has set up in this world to draw us away from the true God. But that is our choice. And as Proverbs tells us, God has given us his counsel. God has given us his truth. And if we choose to ignore that, then we will suffer the fate of our own choice. And so he says, these people who worship the Antichrist are those whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's the danger. And that's why he gives the warning in verse 9. He says, if any man have an ear, let him hear Okay, he said, this is what's going to happen now. Listen up. If anybody is concerned about the truth, if you care at all about the truth, listen up. Now, this phrase we already have heard in chapters 2 and 3. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Right? Now, in chapters 2 and 3, there's an additional part added. It says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why isn't that part of the phrase on here? church is gone. Remember, we're in the tribulations. The church is gone. 
There's no need to say what the Spirit says to the churches. God is speaking directly to the people left on earth. And so he says, he that has an ear, let him hear. And God is saying, if you care at all about truth, then you'd better listen to this point. Now, again, by this time, many people have already decided against God. And we're talking about the people who have gone through at least half of the tribulation still are alive. They've experienced and seen all of the judgments of God, all of the disasters that are come upon the earth, the, the church disappearing, and it, they still reject God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul describes this situation, and he talks about the, the Antichrist being revealed. In uh, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verses 8 through 12, Paul says, And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. There it is. The deceit that he brings that people will believe who are embedded, if you will, in unrighteousness. And their destiny is to perish. And it says, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They don't love truth. They love their own truth. And that's what keeps people from being saved. Verse 11, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So it's their own choice. They didn't want the truth. And you see that all around us today in the world. You see people just ignoring or actually blaspheming God's truth because they don't want to submit themselves to it. They want to do their own thing. We see it in government. We see it in culture. We see it in society. We see it in churches. They don't want the truth. And God says those people will be damned. God has already given them ample opportunity to repent and to trust him and to submit themselves to Jesus Christ as their Savior. He's given them opportunity to accept his truth. It's not that God condemned them from the start. They had ample opportunity. Now, specifically, these people in the tribulation period that we're reading about, okay, just think about the opportunities God's given them. I already mentioned in chapter 6, when they call on the rocks and hills to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of whom? The wrath of the one who sits on the throne. They know God's on the throne. They know he's in control. And they reject it. And they say from the wrath of the lamb, they know Jesus Christ is that sacrificial lamb. And they reject it. Chapter 7, we were introduced to 144,000 witnesses. They will be sealed by God, and their testimony will go out throughout all of the earth. So there's 144,000 people on the earth at this time whose main goal in life is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world. And God has protected them and sealed them for that purpose. So you can't say that nobody has heard or that some of these people haven't heard. God is going to make sure they hear the message. We also, in chapter 11, had the two special witnesses, which the Bible says all the world will see. They've heard the truth. And in fact, remember when the Antichrist rises up and kills the two witnesses, the whole world rejoices because they don't have to listen to that message anymore. 
And then in chapter 13, as we get to verse 8, the people accept anything other than God. They take the Antichrist as their God. Romans chapter 1 says these kinds of people know God exists. God is true. Man are liars, okay? So we can't believe what man says. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't realize. Okay, I'm sorry. That's not true. The Bible says otherwise. In Romans chapter 1, when you go through Romans chapter 1, and I won't for time's sake, but it starts off, it says that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They refuse to acknowledge God as God, even though they know he is God. They refuse. And then they change his truth into a lie. They replace him with false gods, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And eventually, God turns them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, Romans 1 says. They choose their own way. And they embrace and then participate in everything that they have chosen in rebellion to him. Anything that goes against God's truth, that's what we're going to choose. And God turns them over to that mind. But it's not like they didn't have a chance. Romans 1 says they are without excuse. And Romans 1 ends by saying that they know their rebellion will end in judgment, and yet they do it anyway, and they enjoy it. So they condemn themselves. And here in Revelation 13, we literally have people who are personally seeing and suffering in the direct judgment of God on the earth like it's never been revealed before, with the gospel of Christ being preached like it's never been preached before in all of history, and yet they choose the judgment over God's truth. Their names are not written in the book of life because they've condemned themselves in unbelief. And so here in verse 9, God gives one last warning, and he says, if there's anyone who's left who will listen, then take notice of what I'm about to say. And it's the same words we see in chapter 2 and 3 when Christ is warning the seven churches about their sin. If you do not change, this is the judgment that's coming. And that's exactly what God's saying here. So what is the message that they need to hear? Verse 10. He says, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Now, there's two sections here. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. That phrase is kind of a reference to Jeremiah chapter 15. Let me read the first two verses, and you'll recognize some of the words here. Then said the Lord unto me, to Jeremiah, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Talking about the sin of Israel at that point. Cast them out of my sight, and let them go forth. It shall come to pass, if they say unto thee, Whither shall we go forth? And thou shalt tell them, Thus saith the Lord, Such as are for death to death, and such as for the sword to the sword, and such as for the famine to the famine, and such as for the captivity to the captivity. God at that point in Jeremiah's day was telling Jeremiah, These people have stepped over the line. There's nothing that you can do that anyone can do at this point to stop the judgment that is coming against them. And we know that just after this, Babylon came in. Assyria had already destroyed Israel. Babylon came in, destroyed Jerusalem. All of Israel was scattered, put in exile, millions of people killed. And nothing was going to stop that because they had rejected God. That's what he said. He says they have 
put them out of mind. And he says, cast them out of my sight. Let them go forth. And, and when the people come to Jeremiah, God says, and, and say, well, what are we going to do? Where should we go? Here's the words. Those that are destined for death will be dead. They will die. Those that will, are destined for the sword, they will be destined to the sword. Those that are destined for famine, they will suffer famine. Those that are destined to captivity, they will be in captivity. And nothing is going to change that. And that's exactly the message that God is giving the people in the tribulation at this point. We have gotten to a point where mankind has become so wicked and so rebellious against God. That's it. God says, you stepped over the line. And nothing is going to change the judgment that I'm going to bring against you. In fact, in Jeremiah, he says, even if Moses and Samuel showed up and tried to intervene on behalf of their people, God wouldn't listen to them and change his mind. Now, you remember, if you know Israel's history, that there were several times when God said to Moses, stand back, I'm done with these guys, I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to start over with you. And Moses intervened and God said, okay, I repent of the evil I was going to do. And God says, not again, not now. It's gone too far. Now, the first part of this verse in Revelation 13 can be interpreted or looked at two ways. He says, first, he that is destined for captivity must go into captivity. That means, and he's talking with all people, not just unbelievers. He's talking with all people because the last phrase of verse 10 says, this is the faith and patience of the saints. Okay? So he's talking to all people. But he's saying, if God has planned for you to go to prison, you're going to go to prison regardless of what you try to do to escape it. You can't overturn God's will in this. And especially for those of you who have chosen the captivity of worshiping the beast, do you think he's your deliverer? You're going to experience what he really is. You have been brought into bondage. Paul uses that analogy when he talks about sin the bondage of sin. These people chose the Antichrist and they placed themselves in his captivity and they will suffer the consequences of it. So those who are destined for captivity must go into captivity. And this is for believers as well because many people we know even in the time of John ended up in prison. John was in exile in the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony for Christ. But God is saying to Christians here too, if I have destined that you go into captivity... That's my will. Don't try to change it. Because that's what I see as best for you. We already know the Antichrist is going to make war against the saints and overcome them, and probably many will be put in prison. So God's talking to Christians too. If you have been ordained to captivity, you will go into captivity. Don't fight it. Don't complain to me when it happens, because it's part of my, process, my, my plan. And then he says, the, the second way to look at this, he that leadeth others into captivity will be made a captive himself. In other words, those people that are making other people prisoners will become prisoners. David alluded to this in Psalm 9, verse 15, when he said, the heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In other words, God will catch sinners in their own traps that they've set for others. The psalmist goes on, he said, in the net which they hid is their own foot taken. And so God is saying to unbelievers here, if you are the ones planning the captivity of others, 
you will end up in captivity. Your own net will come back on yourself because that's the way sin works. Then the second part of the verse, he says, he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Those who come against God's people to kill them will be killed. Now we know the fate of the Antichrist. He will be destroyed. He will be cast into the lake of fire. And we know from further on in Revelation that those people who war against God and against Jesus Christ specifically and the people of God in the battle of Armageddon, they will all be destroyed. Christ is going to wipe them out. The Bible says he will trample them under his feet till the blood runs as deep as the horse's bridles and his garments will be sprinkled with their blood. So their destiny is sealed and those who come against God's people with a sword must be killed. There's no escape from the wrath of Almighty God. Now, here's what amazes me as you read things like this and as you look at other passages in Scripture. It's not that God judges those who persecute his people because that's a pattern through Scripture. God judges those people who persecute his people. But, as we've already seen, this is the amazing part, God actually empowers and enables them to do that persecution. And then he judges those people for their sin. If you just look at it from that perspective, it's almost like, well, wait a minute, what you're saying then is God makes people criminals and then he punishes them because they're criminals. That doesn't make sense. Here's what we have to remember. We have to remember that God does not cause people to sin. God does not make them sin. Okay, God's will is for us not to sin. But God created them. He knew they were going to sin. He gives them life. He gives them strength. He ordains positions of power in the world and puts people, allows people to be in different positions and allows them to exercise that authority in whatever way they choose. Now, you can just, you get that picture just from the kings of Israel. After Solomon, remember the kingdom split. You had Jeroboam and Rehoboam and then a whole line of evil kings in the north. There were no good ones in Israel after that. A few in the south, but most of the kings were bad. And yet God gave them that place of authority as kings because we know that God sets up kings and takes down kings. That was a lesson that's made clear in Daniel. And so God gave them that authority. And yet they carry out that authority against God's people, against God, and sin. And God empowers them to do that. But then he judges them. Nebuchadnezzar, here's a great example. Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of Babylon. When Babylon came against the southern kingdom of Judah and destroyed it, and three times he came in over the course of 40 years, and he attacked Jerusalem the third time, he destroyed the city, burned the city, destroyed the temple, took the articles from the temple and took them back to Babylon, took people in exile. Thousands of people went into exile into Babylon, the best of the crop. He left the poor people there with nothing, killed everybody else. And yet in Ezra chapter 5, verse 12, God says that God gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, in Jeremiah chapter 25, God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Now, how could Nebuchadnezzar, an evil king who destroys God's people and destroys God's temple, be God's servant? 
because God enabled him to bring judgment against his own people. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you keep reading in chapter 25 of Jeremiah, verse 12, God says this, It shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity. Their sin was persecuting and destroying the people of God. And yet God enabled them to do that. See, that's the thing that doesn't make sense for us when we talk about God's sovereignty. How can God empower people to sin and kill his own people? And then he punishes them for doing it. That's what he's going to do for the Antichrist. That very thing. He empowers him. He allows him or puts him in that position. Gives him free reign to exercise his authority and his evilness over God's people, to overcome them, the Bible says. And then he's going to be punished for it. See, sin doesn't change just because power comes from God. All right, all life comes from God, so all sinners are given that power by God. All sinners are given that choice by God. The question is, are we going to submit to God's truth and do things his way with the life he's given us? Or are we going to do things our own way, usurping the life that God gave us and using it for ourselves? And that's what all sinners are guilty of. Whether you're a leader, a ruler, a king, or the Antichrist, all sinners are guilty of that very thing. We take what God has given us and use it for ourselves and for our own purposes. And God lets us. It doesn't mean he's lost control. Because here's the greatest part of God's sovereignty. Even as he lets us sin, as he lets evil rulers perpetuate evil against Christians, God still uses it to accomplish his purpose. That's the incredible thing. When we talk about God's sovereignty, that's the point that just blows me away. That even though God empowers, enables, and allows sin in the creation that he has made, he uses that evil to accomplish his good purpose. How? I don't know. You're going to have to ask God when we get to heaven. Okay? Because that doesn't make sense to me. But he does. See, that is the substance Behind Romans 8.28, I know you've heard me say this, but we need to get a hold of that verse and understand the truth. We know that all things work together for good to them who, are, who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So even though God allows sin in our lives, God allows people to attack us, even though God may allow people to kill us because we're believers or for some other reason, has God lost control? No. And so all of that is built into this, these verses here, in verses 11, uh, 10, verses 10 and, and 11. I'm sorry, verses 9 and 10. But I want you to look as we close at the last phrase of verse 10. It says, here is the patience and faith of the saints. He's just said, basically, no one's going to escape judgment. No one can escape captivity if that's what God's destined you for. No one's going to escape death. If that's what God's destined you for, here is the patience and faith of the saints. How does that give us patience and faith? Well, see, there's hope. First of all, as believers, so what if we're killed, okay? What's the worst thing that could happen to you on earth? You could be killed. Then then what? Then we're in heaven. What's so bad about that? 
Okay, death is nothing more than a portal through which God transports us to be with him. That's a good thing. Now, I talk to Christians, and, and many people say, <clears throat> you know, I'm not afraid to die. I'm just afraid how I'm going to die, right? We don't want to go through the suffering. We don't want to have to have this long, drawn-out illness or long, drawn-out suffering in our life. We, and I can understand that's a legitimate human fear, and yet God says even through those kinds of things, he will be with us. He will sustain us. See, there's the hope. No matter what we have to go through, whether it be death, persecution, imprisonment, which may be a valid thing coming against Christians in our future, but God's still in control, and he has a good plan for us. And even if we die, hey, we go to heaven. There's nothing wrong with that. And so God says the patience and faith of the saints And he's saying, I know there's a lot of wickedness, and put yourself in the conditions of chapter 13 in Revelation in the tribulation. You think it's bad now? Uh, I wouldn't want to be alive then. But he's telling these people, here's your hope, here's your faith, your patience, even through the worst of what they're experiencing. So even as believers are being persecuted and killed by the Antichrist, God's still in control. It's part of his overall plan. I read this statement a long time ago. It stuck with me, and I think it's a great truth for us to remember. Did you ever think that the suffering that you're going through now is not about you? Maybe God is putting you through trials now so that you can help somebody else later who is going through the same thing. So it has nothing to do with you. See, that's embedded here. God has a plan. If he allows us to be hurt, persecuted, imprisoned, killed, whatever. He didn't make a mistake. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about God being glorified. And if he can be glorified in your death and your persecution and your trial and your suffering, praise be to God. And that's why he says, here's the patience and faith of the saints. In James chapter 1, We are told in verse 7, and I'm going to turn there because I'm going to finish with this verse. James chapter 1. Let me go back because one verse isn't going to do it. Uh, Let's go back to verse 3, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, that's the verse we all know, but how many of us practice it? Okay, God, I want patience, but I want it now. And don't put me anything through hard that I have to learn it, right? Patience comes through tribulation. So he says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. What wisdom is he talking about there? Understanding what patience is and what causes it, what builds it in us, how we rejoice in trials. That's the wisdom he's talking about. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. 
In verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And what he's saying is this. If you want patience, if you want blessing, if you want God's will for your life, but you want it apart from all of the trials and all the suffering and all the persecution that you're going to experience in your life, you just want God and you want a happy life too, being safe, happy, provided for, and nothing wrong. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is understanding that Patience comes through trials. And he says in verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If you think you can get patience and have your faith built because you have an easy life from God, you're out of your mind. Verse 7, let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. God doesn't give you stuff or do things in your life so that you can be comfortable and happy. God allows things in your life so that you rely on him, that you become more holy, that you become less about yourself and more about God. And so as we close this passage in Revelation chapter 13, the end of verse 10, this is the patience and faith of the saints. Many of them are destined for prison or death. And God says, I don't want you to try to change that. I don't want you to come to me praying that you would be delivered from it. Trust me that I'm doing what's right. That's the message that's applicable to us today. Even though it seems like everyone's against us and nothing in our lives is going right, when we're hurt by others, including by those who are the most religious, who call themselves Christians and are at church and all the rest of it, okay, We must believe that God is sovereign. And that's what our faith rests in. God is in control. He allowed it for a reason. And the reason is my patience. He knows I need patience. And my faith. Because faith is what we know, but not what we see. When we see everybody attacking us, we feel like God has abandoned us. But what does the truth say? God is with us. He will never forsake us. All things work together for good. That's the truth. And so it is through those trials, it is through those persecutions that God strengthens our faith, that he teaches us patience to wait to see what he's trying to do in the long run, in the big picture that we can't see. Same message that he gives to believers here in the tribulation period. Is that the description of your faith? Or have you stepped aside from God and his word because it doesn't make sense at this moment in your life? Psalm 37, 5 says, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. doesn't mean that God's going to give you everything you ask for. The verse before that says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This verse is right on its heels. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also him. He shall bring it to pass. Not what you want. But basically what you're saying is, okay, Lord, I'm going to delight in your truth, your purpose. I'm going to surrender to your overall plan. And so whatever you allow, I'll accept. I'll learn from. And I'm going to trust you that you're doing things well. And it says, if we trust in him, he will bring it to pass. In other words, he will accomplish in our lives the purpose that he has for our lives.
but we have to give our lives to him first. He will not give you what you want, but he will always accomplish what he wants. That's the truth of God's sovereignty. And that's why, as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, we have to believe and hold on to that truth. No matter how bad it is, all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Is that what your faith is founded on? Because that's what true faith is all about. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the challenge that you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to meditate on these truths. Even as we go through the trials and struggles of life, as we face persecution, as we just face hard times in our lives each day, Lord, we know that you're in control. You allow them for a purpose. So give us patience. Teach us patience. Teach us to wait on the Lord, as you've told us over and over in your word. Because in your time, you will, you will reveal what is true and what is good. And so, Lord, help us to trust you as we should. Thank you again for your wisdom today, for your truth that you've given us in your word. May your Holy Spirit now work in us to embed these things in our hearts so that it becomes part of our lives. And we'll thank you for your goodness in everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hymn number 298 is our closing hymn. 298, God leads us along. I'm going to ask that you.